It's the Productize Podcast. My name is Brian Castle. Thank you for tuning in today. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're finishing up the summer here safely and trying to stay sane. I know I'm, well, I'm doing my best over here. <laughs> today I'm talking to Dan Andrews. He is the co-founder of Dynamite Jobs. He's also the co-host of the very popular, one of my favorite podcasts of all time, <laughs> uh, Tropical MBA, uh, which he co-hosts with, with Ian. And so this was a really great conversation. Dan and I covered quite a bit of ground, a little bit on productized services, but then we also went deep into how they've built the podcast and how they run it and, and have been so consistent for well over 10 years, and then how that has led to building a really strong community, which has then led to a business exit and then, a, then leading into their current business, Dynamite Jobs. And, and near the end there, we, we went deep into the hiring process what makes it go well, what makes it not go so well, and how, and how they've been really optimizing that whole process for, for entrepreneurs and using a very unique, like a network-based approach to, to recruiting and not only making it easier for, for businesses to hire, but to end up with a, more, with, with a higher quality and just better experience overall. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of really good insight from, from Dan here. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just uh, I'll just leave it at that. Let's let's head right into it. Here is my conversation with Dan Andrews. Enjoy. Dan Andrews, Dan, thanks for coming on. How's it going, Brian? It's uh, awesome that you reached out to me. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, so am I, man. I, I've been a longtime fan, longtime listener of, of, of you and Ian on the Tropical NBA. I think I was on the show years ago. Yeah, talking about productized services, probably. A huge theme on our show, for sure. Like yes. exploring that concept and kind of got to see it materialize in front of us in our community, you know? For sure. This is a way people have managed to find financial freedom and flexibility in their lives. So Totally, man. I, I mean, the people I, I talk to a lot and listeners of this show, most of them are consultants or, or their agencies or, or freelancers. And, and the thing I always talk about with productized services is that it's like, it's like the path of least resistance, mm -hmm. you know, to go from either from a full-time job or freelancing by the hour into like an actual business that you could scale. People talk about you can, you can build courses, you can build software, you can do all these things, but that takes so much more time and effort and the productized service is like you can get there a lot faster. You know, it's kind of a shortcut. 100%. And there's this uh, concept that we talk about sometimes called SWAS which is a right. software with a service. I, I really enjoyed that. I spoke with an entrepreneur yesterday who basically just does like complicated Salesforce integrations for people. And we're talking five-figure contracts over and over and they have a little productized element of it. And I think that's, uh, it's just this amazing idea that like you can stare a cash flow down and stick your cash register directly into it. You know, you already know that people are spending money. They already value these implementations. They've already bought the software. And so I think that there's such an enormous opportunity rather than thinking about what am I passionate about or what I want my life to look like. These are big questions. Whereas, you know, how do I make a living on my own terms? There's a cash flow. I can solve problems. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty yeah. cool concept. Very cool. I mean, we could we could talk for days about kicking around productized service ideas. I remember you had a series. I don't know if you're still doing it. The um Business idea donations. Yeah, yeah. Business idea donations. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so for anyone who, who hasn't been up on the Tropical MBA podcast, you definitely got to go in there and just dig through the archives and, and listen to it today. I mean, you, you know, 
you're one of the most consistent podcasts for many years now. I still listen to it regularly, and I highly recommend it for for anyone out there. Cheers, appreciate that. But that, but that's sort of like where I want to start here. Uh, we're going to talk about you know you you and Ian's current business with Dynamite Jobs and and the Dynamite Circle and everything, and how that's been evolving lately. But everything I I know about you guys and and it seems like it's been a big driver of of how you your entrepreneurial career has gone has has been basically from the podcast is that right i mean obviously you guys had the business before like the first business before that but take me through like when did you when did you guys decide to start the podcast and and how did that like evolve in the early years in the early years it was like i used to well, my business mentor gave me like an ipod for as a bonus one year and I went on to iTunes and I realized I could like learn about entrepreneurship from these consultants and SEO folks and all kinds of people putting up these like pirate radio podcasts. And I would just binge them because I had a long commute. And after about a year of listening to pods, and I was working in a very entrepreneurial organization with Ian and our third partner at the time. And I just thought, we kind of have something to say here. I mean, I always loved radio. And I love the impact these podcasts were having on me, like bringing information to me that I wouldn't otherwise, you know, have any contact with. These were practitioners who were also taking some time to preach. You know, they were taking some time to say, hey, here's actually how I'm ranking sites. Here's actually how I'm, you know, living in Hawaii or whatever while I make an income online. I thought that was really inspiring. About a year after we started our business, which was an e-commerce business that created valet parking equipment, and cocktail bars. We had a distributed team. We were manufacturing in China. We had built our own e-commerce store on Drupal. And we were kind of doing businesses in this, what I felt was a very internet markety kind of way, but with physical products. And at the yeah. time, all the podcasts were basically consultants, coaches, especially a lot of like, hey, wealth, mindset kind of stuff, but it was never really clear how people were making money, mostly by buying their courses and they would tell you how they made money sort of thing. Like around around what year was, was all this happening? This was about 2008. Okay. And so in 2009, I was like, I think we have a unique voice. Like we believe what everybody's saying here, like wealth mindset and career trajectory and entrepreneurship are our core values, but we're just doing it a little bit differently. Um, we're doing it with physical hard goods products. We're doing it with things that aren't make money online kind of stuff. And we thought, we know there's a lot of other people taking on this journey too. Maybe we could connect with them if we started a show talking about it. And I think initially that's what resonated with people about our show. It was sort of like, uh, you know, Rob Walling's show, Startups for the Rest of Us. It was sort of like internet marketing for the rest of us. Like for people that aren't going to be part of this like MLM guru Kool-Aid it was kind of like the pod for like legit folks who were just trying to figure it out. Yeah. And like the thing that, that has always resonated with me, you know, Tropical NBA and, and, and Rob's stuff with, with uh, Startups with the Rest of Us, those, those two have been my like go-to like every week listens for years. And, and yeah, it's, it's, like, it's interesting to hear you like kind of compare it to like the, the marketing world. I, I compare it to like the VC, like I just resonate as a bootstrapper. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's just what always made sense to me. It's like you make a thing, you sell it for money, and you keep growing based on your customer's revenue. Not, not that I'm against investment, but like that's what always resonated. Like I, I always wanted to hear advice from other very small internet-based businesses and how they're, 
how they're making it work. It makes sense. And, you know, the networks we were running in, we didn't have access to the big San Francisco game or the great educations or, you know, we were in a secondary tech city and not even really a tech city. And for us at the time, the idea of making six figures from our own online business was the the holy grail, like the end game that we weren't thinking about selling a business for a hundred million dollars or these kinds of things. So the idea that we were going to go start out some ride sharing app or all these things that you'd hear about on shows like Venture Voice and stuff. Yeah, it didn't resonate with me. I was like, what I'm going to try to do is like sell 600 valet podiums a year and I want to travel freely and I want to save for retirement. I want to just take Wednesdays off. Like that to me is the end game. And, uh, and that's the sort of a community that we ended up fostering around that show is people like you that resonate with that idea of like, just find your customers. You don't need to follow political trends or invest in the right stuff. Like you just need to find like a couple hundred or maybe even a thousand people who appreciate what you do, your product and buy it. And that's all you need to do. And I, I like that kind of simplicity and also the dignity, frankly, of not playing political games, but simply doing something positive for your customers that they appreciate so much they're willing to, to fund a good lifestyle for you and your family. Absolutely. So, I mean, with the pod, I, I think one of the things that, that obviously stands out is just the consistency of it. I'm, I'm, like, and, you know, you've been at this, what, well over 10 years now with the podcast, right? Yeah. So, and you've, you and Ian have been through so much in that time. You went through like the, the growth of your business and, and exit from the business, starting up new ones, building this community with the DC, doing events and stuff. Like, how do you keep, like, obviously the, the podcast is very important, but like, you know, there are so many businesses that think about, oh, maybe I should do a podcast. Maybe I should, I should do this or that, but they don't stick with it. Like, how, how have you guys made it work so that you're literally publishing week after week? I don't, I don't remember a week where you. Yeah, you know, we had to go to marriage counseling twice. We got separated, remarried, renewed our vows, all that kind of stuff. But really with the podcast is, I think you have to make it financially sustainable. That's the first thing. So whether it's the product on the back end, whether it's uh, advertising, and the reason for that is that we have a team in place. Former listener and senior BBC producer reached out to us over four years ago now, and she's been helping produce the show. Her name is Jane. She's absolutely fantastic. And we also have a sound engineer that's been working with us for probably six years now. His name's Arison. And so the four of us make up the TMBA team and we're you know, financially sustainable. And then the other element of it is we're passionate about it. Like I love radio. I want to be in the game. I just think it's so interesting being able to listen to voices like yours, like Rob's, and we can just, the laundry list goes on. This idea that you get to hear from stories that are on the ground, those details of other people doing things I'm trying to emulate have been invaluable to me. And so I guess, you know, one of the things we see often is a lot of people are doing a podcast for a certain sort of result. And I think that that's not necessarily a bad strategy decision or whatever. You can tell though, when people are interviewing you, like I can tell the difference between you and a lot of other interviewees. Like you can tell they're just trying to log the interview because, yeah. and then they're hoping that I share it. And it's like, all right, great. Let's see how that works out for you. Like, <laughs> Because it's right. just not the case that your guests are always going to want to promote your show or whatever. It's always going to work out in terms of leads. You know, with podcasting, it's interesting because it's like, I'm not as consistent as I want to be in terms of publishing every week. Like with this podcast, I've, I've gone through stretches of months where I just didn't publish anything. But that's mostly because I got 
burned out on the work involved in in doing a really good podcast. You know what I mean? Like I do. I, I do have a, a a guy who who helps me out with like some guest research, and and that that's worked pretty well at times. But like, you know, th- there's nothing I, I I I dislike more than like getting on on the mic with someone who I really know nothing about, and I haven't spent all the extra time like researching them, or I don't already follow them, and it's just difficult to you know and th- that's where you hear like the like the canned lines of questions from, from you know interviews that that try to be mixergy but they're just not i had a moment like a kind of a breakdown moment where ian and i had sold our business and we were trying to like you know launch some new stuff to get some new cash flow going and i remember just our podcast goes out thursday mornings it was like a wednesday night and i was just like dude i am so exhausted and it was in that moment that i realized like there was this whole process that I was doing every week that I didn't realize was a job. And it's a real thing. It's called audio production or or radio production. And, you know, shows have producers, they have writers. And I don't know what led to me realizing this, but I realized like this is happening internally in me every week. I'm like having to figure out what's interesting. I'm having to follow my nose. I'm having to cultivate that guest, all this kind of stuff. And it ended up that, I kind of wrote this blog post saying, I'm tired, I'm burnt out, I can't get an episode up every week. I think I need a producer and a writer. And it was then that Jane reached out to me and she said, you know, she was looking at, she had been listening to our show because she had been working at the BBC her whole career. And she wanted to have more freedom and flexibility in her life. And I was kind of shocked. Oh my God, I can't believe someone with these kinds of credentials listens to podcasts like ours, you know? Yeah it ended up being a cool win-win situation where all I wanted was, Hey, I just need 40 hours a month. You know, this is, this is really like for someone that knows what they're doing, this is like five to 10 hours a week of focused energy. And it's a win-win because I, you know, I can pay you enough to cover the rent, but I don't, I I don't have a full-time salary for this. And that ended up being a win-win because for creative people, then, you know, they can make money with their time doing writing, editing, freelance gigs, and then rely on your consistent payment to maybe pay the rent or basic living expenses. Yeah, very cool. I had a, actually a pretty similar thing um, with Will, who was on the show a couple of episodes back. He, he's been uh, the guy helping me produce this show. He was a listener of, of my stuff for, for a while, and, he, and I expressed on, on the air how I'm getting kind of burned out with the podcast, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and he reached out. And, and so he's been helping with, with some of the recent like, guest invites and, and some background research and stuff. I don't know that we've fully like figured figured everything out to to where it's really running like a T. I'm I'm curious like can you take us behind the scenes like for a minute like what what does it look like in like a week of producing a, a TMBA show? Yeah, the key thing is the production meeting, which we haven't missed for four and a half years. So there's your consistency. It's we have a running document of what we're going to discuss that week. Basically, everybody who's emailed us. So you emailed us a few weeks ago. It's like Brian Castle emailed about this. Let's discuss it. So-and-so emailed about this. Let's discuss that. We'll talk about the next weeks coming up, which shows we expect to run and which ads are going to run against them. And then yesterday, for example, I was interviewing someone who's never been interviewed before. They're a productized service entrepreneur. And so the producer knew this. So Jane brought to me like a pack of, hey, you know, Lawrence has never been interviewed before, but here's some interesting things about him. Here's some things you wrote on Twitter. He's he's like, he's really... Uh, we knew him in person. So like we didn't need to do a pre-screen call. Sometimes a producer will call up and make sure the person, uh, you know, has good motivations and all that kind of stuff is honest. 
that's basically how it goes is like we that hour long production meeting of four smart people getting together you can kind of like bang through a lot of stuff the secret sauce is really on the back end where i'll do an interview for an hour hour and a half with somebody and it immediately goes turns into a transcript and this is where like i think the production power really turns in where that transcript then gets edited like it were an essay and so this is how people at the bbc and uh npr do it where if, for example, you go through biographical information, this person just spent like 10 minutes describing their backstory. What we're going to do is like we X all that out and here's a paragraph summary of their backstory. Yeah, like you can in- intro the show. You know exactly. I mean? yeah. Exactly. So that's, I mean, that's a big part of it. And then we have an audio engineer on the backside who understands all those production documents and has been around for half a decade. So I think the first things first is like you got to, you know, have it be financially stable. And then the second thing... You know, you got to be passionate about doing it. And yeah, that production call, I really enjoy it. Smart people talking about fun ideas and great stories. And that's kind of the process. And throughout the week, you know, scattered interviews like this, and we all piece it together and it turns into shows. Yeah, very nice. I mean, you know, then then the other, I guess, very significant development in your trajectory, is, as I see it, like from the outside is is the the launch and the growth of the DC your your private community mm-hmm. and and this is one of those things like like I just feel like community in general as a as a marketing strategy is is so much it's basically just more powerful than like most other quote unquote tactics for for marketing right like like this idea of like people come together with a with a shared with some shared beliefs some shared goals you know and and I'm finding that podcasts are almost always that doorway into a community. I mean, I never heard of the DC before I listened to your podcast. I, I attend almost every microcomp event mm-hmm. and I only found out about that from listening to Rob's podcast, you know, and, and, uh, and so like, I, I love that, that pathway of like podcast to community, even with, with, with this show and, and, and my other one bootstrapped web that I do with Jordan. Yep. Like, you know, there's there's like a mini community ar- around that. We we don't have like a, a, a formalized one, but like on Twitter and stuff, there's just people who tune in every single week, and you start to see the same faces. And so, like, can can you talk a little bit about that? Like, what like when did the DC launch, and and how did that like evolve in the early years? Sure. And and on that point, I think one of my like things that always runs through my head is I'm just disappointed with how data and metrics represent reality. And there's something about we used to call it like the chops index. Like there's something about if you hear somebody speak for an hour a week, at a certain point, you get a sense for how smart they are, whether or not they share your values, how they work through problems. You figure out basically whether they're your people or not. You know, it's hard not to listen to Rob's podcast and be like, I really would like to hang out with this guy. <laughs> like, I want to I hang out with people that want to hang out with this guy and resonate with what he's saying. And so I think that that's probably that natural on-ramp of like, bit more of like a higher bit rate, so to speak, about who we're talking about. Like the, one of my guests recently said he was trying to solve an SEO problem and he realized like the wrong way to go about hiring was to figure out what the problem was. He, he should have figured out who knew the answer and focusing on the people as a nexus of information as opposed to the data or yeah, as it represents itself. So in, in, with the DC, I mean, Essentially, the podcast started out as sort of a cry for help. It's sort of like, okay, we're doing this weird business thing and it's a bunch of gurus online. So who else is out there like trying to do something 
more legitimate than just sell people how to make money online. People resonated with that. They started reaching out and we started meeting up. And once people met each other, it was for a lot of us, it was like, wow, I finally found my people, people that speak my language. And so it became easy from there to throw multiple events and then get people together on an online forum. So I think that that's really the story of the DC is about highly mobile entrepreneurs that were legit actually meeting each other and making relationships. And it makes it a lot easier to have a membership website quote. We don't have to look at like traditional metrics. You might read a blog post about how to start an online community. None of that stuff really applied to us because what we were trying to do is find the right people and create real relationships between them. Yeah. Yep. I mean, just making the leap from from a podcast or, or an online presence to actually meeting in person in the real world, that's that's like a, a leap that most people don't end up taking. Whether you're a listener or, or you're trying to form your own community, it's so powerful. I, I always think back, like I've been self-employed for maybe the last like, like 12 years now, something like that. And it wasn't until like four or five years into that, that I actually started to go to like local meetups and, a, and occasionally a conference or two and, and started to listen to more to podcasts and stuff. And it's like, that's when things got interesting. It's when I started meeting people in person and, and actually forming some, some of my closest friendships today are, are like my friends on the internet that I hang out with a couple times a year. You know? 100%. The other thing is that like, unless you, if you just do a pod and then you have like, say a sales funnel, like an email newsletter, and then a comment section, and maybe people tweet about your show. This is like 1% of your listenership. And they're a specific type of listenership. They're people that are like maybe social media engaged. It's like, I've been so surprised and impressed at like, if you put out different sorts of offers, how it engages like different parts of the audience. So, you know, if we'll do an episode about investing, and we'll get emails from stockbrokers in New York, or guys that run private equity funds and stuff. It's like, these guys aren't retweeting your show. You know what I mean? Like, they're, they're not going to do that. But, it, you know, we back in 2014, we threw a, an event in Singapore and it was like, you can't come unless you're a millionaire, you know? And yeah. we had it at this really fancy hotel. And it was like, I never saw a tweet from these people. I never saw an email from them. You know, they don't hang out and chit chat in forums, but they were, there was 22 of them that showed up to this hotel in Singapore. They're there and they still get value from a, from a community, from an, like, there's still a, a need at that level, you know? They, 100 percent just be visible on on twitter you know that's remarkable so you know i i don't want to get into like every point in the story obviously you guys have covered things like your your exit Mm -hmm. from your business a few years back um you wrote a whole book around that what i'm interested what i'm interested there is sort of like what went on between between you and ian like thinking about what's next and when did that question start to obviously like there's all the all, all the work and stress and, and, and excitement that, that's involved in actually preparing and selling and exiting the business. But at the same time, you're thinking about what's next, or, or maybe it wasn't at the same time. Like, how did that all kind of, kind of play in? Yeah, I mean, a lot of what the book is about is this common situation that happens with entrepreneurs that exit is you kind of feel vaguely depressed and you're not sure why. I mean, maybe a lot of people are feeling that way this year. It's a weird thing to happen. It can be alienating because, you know, you just achieved something that a lot of entrepreneurs look up to. You made a lot of money. But we struggled through that because we sold our sense of like identity and service and like kind of sold our greatest life achievement. It was a weird couple years there. Like, wow, um, 
I don't necessarily feel comfortable with what we just did or I don't feel like my life has significantly changed and now we're, we don't have this thing that we basically talked about for, you know, that's what we talked about was our business. <laughs> yeah. And sure, uh, the community was great for that. We did have another vine to jump onto, so to speak. And we were hosting, as of last year, up to 20 events globally every year for our members. So still plenty to do. But at, after, you know, I wrote the book and we started processing this stuff and having a lot of heart to hearts, trying to figure out what the next step was. One of the things we noticed is a lot of our members have essentially, the way we put it internally, and I'll just be completely crass, is like, a lot of our members make a lot more money off of our community than we do. And they do it not by going in there and dropping sales pitches, but by being very clever about observing the cash flow trends in entrepreneurship, using a community of early adopters to get feedback and to build things for them, kind of like a Petri dish, and then externalizing that. You know, If you've found your way to a Dynamite Circle event, you are like the 1% of the 1%. You've traveled to like some remote place, you know, you don't have a job, you run a business. Whereas like, in other words, like the DC membership represents a very small percentage of the overall online entrepreneurship world. So, but if you can have these really sharp first movers taking a look at your product, and then you sort of put it out into the public entrepreneurial space, there's a lot of potential for stuff like that. We saw examples like this with, for example, like AMZ Tracker, WP Curve. A lot of these businesses were essentially like conversations in the DC and at our DC events. And we were inspired by that. And so we started asking ourselves, like, what cash flows exist in the community that could be amplified if we brought them outside of the community? That's the genesis of stuff like uh, Dynamite Jobs and, and Dynamite Deals, which we uh, shut down this year. But that's sort of like the philosophy behind uh, that, that project. Yeah, I mean, it definitely makes sense to 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 think that way in terms of like, okay, we've we've got this really great community, really very active, very supportive. We we like these people. Like, th there's that that founder fit question that I think mm -hmm. you know um, really comes into play. You know, so it makes sense to think like, what what else could be valuable to this same group of people? And and um, and you know, dynamite jobs and dynamite deals certainly makes sense. I'm, I'm well, furthermore, we can we can actually observe it, Brian. That's the crazy bit. Yeah. It's like it actually became a problem that so many of our members were posting jobs in the forum. Right. And, and right. So, it's this weird thing where like that one person gets so much benefit from it because they know they're going to get someone great. But then the rest of the thousand rest of us are like, why do we have to look at this person's job ad? <laughs> we don't want to look at yeah. this. So, yeah. I'm still curious about that period of time, like from say like closing of, of, of the deal that to, to sell the business to, to thinking about like, let's actually launch a new website or a new product. Like how, how like, did you take a, a, a stretch of time off completely? Or were you like, what, what did that, and, and like, were you kicking around different ideas? Like, what did that look like? Well, I moved to Spain and started riding my bike 15 hours a week. So there's that. Ian, <laughs> Ian started towing out all these fancy race cars at his place in Austin, Texas. We definitely kind of had that, let's retire a little, but not too much kind of thing going on. You know, we wanted to enjoy the exit and stuff, but we realized also that we hadn't had like a game, like what Rob Walling would say, we hadn't had a sunset exit. We had just had a, like, now you have a retirement fund and you have a little extra money, but I still got to work. And I think that that was like one of the things I didn't properly consider in exiting that business. I was like entranced by the money, but it didn't change my life as much as I thought it would. And I think that that was a disappointment. I felt like that was a little bit of a failure. 
But, you know, we still had a business to run. I mean, DC with the 20 events and, you know, our Bangkok event, for example, this year we would have sold somewhere around 350 tickets and the tickets are expensive and the membership isn't cheap either. So the answer to your question is kind of like day-to-day operations of the DC is more or less what my focus was. And then kicking around ideas about what that next move was going to be. But I wouldn't say we were like moving fast and breaking things by any means. <laughs> and like, maybe this is a, maybe this is a bit of a weird question. I, I think about it sometimes, but then I like the fact that you, you guys have an audience, obviously that's, it's a benefit, but do you ever find that it's, that it adds some extra weight that you could do without? Like, I've, I've been thinking about this more recently now, you know, I, I love the idea of working in public. I love the idea of sharing progress and being very transparent with with people and, and helping other entrepreneurs where I can. But at the same time, it's like, I'm here trying to make hard decisions on my business every day. And, uh, and, I, don't, and I don't want to share everything public with the world. Yeah. You know? And uh, there's a lot of like well-meaning people who, who reach out and, you know, give me advice or, and, and maybe I'm just second guessing myself in, in terms of like, different moves that I'm making with business as it relates to how I might talk about this on a podcast somewhere, you know? Yeah. Like, like do you think about that kind of stuff? And, and like thinking that like, there, there's a lot more eyes on you guys now. So any, any new things that you're launching, like you ever feel that sort of pressure? Uh, yeah. Well, I remember reading this thing where Paul Graham said of all his time at Y Combinator, the most stressful thing he did was moderate hacker news comments. <laughs> And I saw that and I was like, yeah, Homeboy's been a part of a community for a while. Like, there is a lot of a, a stress associated with moderating a community. There's an enormous amount of conflict resolution and moderation and reaching out to people. And it's hard to get hundreds of people to get along and to be productive together. And I think that, I guess in some ways, like having a hands-on approach to all that is what we've tried to do to separate our community from a lot of others that exist. So... That there is this kind of like baseline stress of of managing a community that always exists for us, for me specifically. That's an interesting question. I think Ian and I addressed it on the show maybe a few months ago. We were talking about it, and I really don't feel that way for some reason. I, I don't know. I've, I, I think all the folks that I know in the community, there's like a face right behind their name, and I feel like they they know like I'm not the world's greatest entrepreneur. I'm not Elon Musk or and that we've had so many failures in front of them in the past that, and we've seen theirs, that we just know it's part of the process. Yeah. For me, it's much more positive right now. I'm curious as to your emotions about it, but I just love the fact that there's a hundred people like excited to try our software and to tell us what they think is true about it. And if they say, we think it's a piece of shit or whatever, it wouldn't bother me that much, honestly. Whereas in the community stuff, like the moderation, if someone feels, that would bother me a little bit more because the whole point of the community is for people to get along and be productive together. And in some ways, like that's a little harder. And I think just to round it all off, you know, running a community is a lot different than running a business, in my view, even though they both can be profitable. I think part of the reason we wanted to start Dynamite Jobs is we were like, we want to run a business. Like, it's really, really fun to call somebody up and say, hey, Brian, I want to solve your problem, man. Like, send me 800 bucks, like I got you. And then if, if I didn't solve your problem, it's like I send you the 800 bucks back and you give me feedback and it's like, good game, I'll try better next time. Whereas with the community stuff, it's, that, it's always moving. Like how happy are you with that event? 
you know, how happy are you with the membership right now? You know, it's more like running a private club or a church or, you know, a private racetrack or something. It's, it's a little bit different than just saying, here's our product. We're going to sell as many of these things as we possibly can. And I think we missed that about our old business. That's when Ian and I sat down and decided, hey, me and you are entrepreneurs. We love the party thing. We love the masterminds. We love the events. But let's start a business. Mm-hmm. And that's really what, what Dynamite Jobs was all about. Yeah, very cool. Just a minute to tell you about Process Kit. If your operation needs to become more efficient and more predictable so that your team never lets anything fall through the cracks, then it's time to implement Process Kit. Process Kit is process-driven project management software made for powering client services businesses. It's especially designed with productized services in mind. Create powerful SOPs with built-in if-this-then-that automations, and then use those processes to power all of your repeatable projects. Whether you're managing a pipeline of new clients onboarding to your service, or tracking weekly deliverables, sales proposals, marketing assets, or admin work, Process Kit is your team's place for getting it all done, but more importantly, done right. Use our powerful Zapier integration to hook Process Kit into all of your other systems. And if you'd like expert help with improving your processes and automations, ask about our Process Kit implementer service. Request your free demo and trial at processkit.com. Like one thing that I found, I guess over the years, but even more recently is just that when I talk publicly about, about the things that are really hard, whether they're failures or just things that I'm personally struggling with, like that's always what listeners and readers resonate with the most and, and give the most response. And, and it ends up being positive. Like I think it act like, you know, being vulnerable out, out in public online and things. I think that that's always very it just makes for good content. And, that, and that's what I like to listen to as well. Like I listen to all my friends' bootstrapper podcast, given their, you know, personal updates on what they're working on. And well, what's something that you feel negative or maybe something that you didn't want to share that turned out to be okay? It sounds like um, your audience, sometimes you feel like they're pressuring you towards more positive outcomes than you can create yourself. Yeah. You know, there's always the, the, uh, you know, they call it like imposter syndrome and all that, but um, I'm, I'm less concerned about that. I, th- I think it's just that like, it's like on the one hand, I know that it's good to be transparent and, and, um, and vulnerable. And, and I think that that's good for our world of entrepreneurs. We're all just trying to figure this out. Like nobody really knows what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Certified. So I, I like, <laughs> yeah. And, and like, I, I like contributing to Like, I, I wish there were more voices being vulnerable online because I get so much value from listening to them. But I'm still like a human with, with, with like, you know, emotions of not wanting to be embarrassed and, and, and also trying to be successful and, and not wanting to talk about the failures and things like that. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's tricky. I understand. Um, so let's talk about Dynamite Jobs. I mean, what was like the, the very first thing that, that you guys launched? Like, was it the, did the deals come first and evolved into jobs? Like, how did that kind of come together? So it started in 2000, late 2017. I was basically saying I had a list of what I felt like were cash flows happening inside the community sort of unofficially. And one of those was this thing called DC offers, or we call it later dynamite deals, which I don't know how interesting that is to get into, but essentially occasionally we'll allow members to like provide amazing deals to each other, sort of in like an app sumo sort of way, but for services. So they'll say something like, hey, 
I have this uh, service that does X for your website rankings. Like I'm willing to offer five members this service at like 60% off. And so long as it was like established and not just like a lead generation thing, we would allow it. <clears throat> so that was one cash flow going on, quite a significant one. And we actually did okay with that, but we wanted to focus on jobs, which we feel like is just a bigger opportunity. So same deal, you know, there was some eight-figure startups happening in the community and those startups would often use some of our satellite events as basically hiring fairs. Like, hey, we want to recruit these people that are like on the vibe. They understand the mindset of these sorts of businesses. You know, we want to maybe buy them out of their business and bring them into ours. And then people would want referrals of freelancers or employees. And people use the community like this all the time. And we thought, well, wouldn't, wouldn't they benefit if, you know, not just a thousand people saw their job ad, but like a 10,000 people saw it. And that was essentially the idea behind Dynamite Jobs is these community members, you know, write down, okay, we got 1,400 members. They have an average of X number of employees each. They do X amount of hiring every year. If we just present those jobs to the public, we're going to build a big audience. And it turned out to be true that for all the time we spent on TMBA over the past decade, we had a bigger mailing list at Dynamite Jobs, I think, within the first year, year and a half than we had really? in a decade at TMBA. Yeah. I mean, we have, uh, at the moment, we have nearly 250 candidates giving us their all of their personal information every week. And it's on the backs of the quality jobs that we're able to harvest. I mean, the sort of tagline of the site is remote jobs you actually want, which is, in our mind, that's jobs with cool, mostly bootstrapped companies um, that are completely remote and building cool products on the web. And so that's kind of what we felt like it was our secret sauce and our advantage was the amazing jobs that people like you are creating. You know, it, like this, uh, like a job board, I, I've talked about it with multiple people on this podcast. It's, it's the marketplace model. It's two sides. You need employers and, and job applicants and candidates. And it's like the type of business model that I'm, I'm so afraid of, of ever doing. Like, it just seems so hard to tackle a two-sided marketplace. Obviously, if you have a a really strong community like the DC, um, it, it makes sense to go that direction. I mean, well, maybe. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, it, it sounds like, like, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like you have the supply side, you know, the job listings, you, you have a, a, a steady supply of that coming from the DC community. And, it's, and in terms of your marketing efforts, you're, you're going out there building the list of people interested in getting jobs. Is that that's right. And I mean, if you could engineer it in a Petri dish, you might want to start with the opposite side of the market first, because part of the problem with using jobs as a way to build the other side of the market is that then you can't charge businesses for their posts, right? And so, because if I all of a sudden put, say it's $500 to post here, then you're just going to have a lot less great jobs. I mean, significantly less. And so that is the challenge with, you know, job boards in general. Super, super difficult. You know, we're nowhere near the point where we could just, you know, make a living off of charging for people to post jobs on our site. So it is definitely, and we've, we're in it multiple six figures. So I would say it's, uh, I mean, depending on how you count the investment, but I would say, you know, a lot of people have, speaking of, you know, audience, I mean, Noah Kagan brought me onto his podcast and basically flayed me and said, what are you doing, man? You know, you're like a, you're a supposed expert at this stuff. And, uh, and I was quick to remind him, I've never said that. 
(laughs) (laughs) Nice. But, you know, we're a little bit stubborn. And what we see on the ground is how amazing it is to get people jobs. It's, you know, there's part of that too. Like you said, you're still a human. Like, this is something we're good at. We've done it for 10 years. We help people get jobs at great companies. There's a business model in here, you know, somewhere that allows us to live a good lifestyle. So long as we're providing enough value to people. And it seems like you, you've iterated on, on this uh, a couple different times with, with Dynamite Jobs. Like, how, how has it changed? What, what were so, some of those shifts that, that you've made in terms of the model? I, I know you're doing like a bunch of things in a very unique way. Like, I've used different job boards over the years, including Dynamite Jobs. I just recently uh, uh, put one up for, for audience ops. Thank you. Oh, actually, no, that, that was the, the marketing person I'm working with on Process Kit. I'm, I'm getting them confused now. So the, yeah, like, like what are some of the, like the unique things that I, I know you're working directly with both applicants and, and jobs? Like, yeah, what, what kind of makes it different from all the other, you know, remote job boards out there? I mean, basically, we're just, we're doing what we do, which is like knowing actual people and reaching out and trying to make quality connections such that you're going to say, hey, I contacted five job boards. The rest of them, I guess, amounted to a bunch of email blasts on my behalf. But at Dynamite Jobs, I had an account manager who understood what I'm trying to do. They have a few personal connections. They have a database of 15,000 candidates. Somehow materialized that someone quality came through. And if someone didn't come through, maybe they gave me some feedback on what they're seeing in terms of trends in their internal database and how they might be able to help me in the future. So essentially, we've moved to basically a, a sort of a white glove process at a flat rate. And that's where the productized service emerged. So essentially, we do what a high-end technical recruiter would do. We just do it for a flat $5,000 fee. And then in terms of just getting you the optimal candidates that you want for any position, we do that at a flat mid-tier fee. So $800 if you just say, look, here's what I got. What do you think of my description? Handhold me through this whole thing. I just want you guys to deliver me candidates that actually get what I'm trying to do here and are super qualified. That's our $800 level of service. So we just have like a, we have a team around it. You know, we have five of us that understand this stuff. We have a high level technical recruiter. We have an account manager with two years of experience. And I think it's most job boards just like don't have a staff on the back end. They have this kind of hybrid of like, okay, on the one hand, they have the platform, but now they also have the recruiters that understand, you know, what SWAS is versus FBA. And I think that that's really where we exist in the market right now. Now, I'm glad you're asking me about it because it's, it's not that apparent. Like we're not out there marketing this so much. Not a lot of people know about it. We're still very much trying to like figure our way into this thing. But it was pretty clear like earlier in the year that we're not going to make a living just like charging folks like you, you know, 150 bucks to post a job on our site. That's not going to cut it. So we needed to go up market and say, hey, Brian, like, do you need a CTO? Do you need you know, someone who can create quality React applications on the front end of your website, like just dump that on our desk. We will get you that person. You know, we understand what you're talking about. All I need is a half an hour with you on the phone. That's kind of the direction we're moving with the productized service. It's been going okay. We had a a $16,000 month last month, and that's more or less, you know, how we've been trending. But, you know, it's expensive right now to run those services. Like I said, we have five of us. So, there's still like a ton, a ton of questions and stress related to that and trying to figure it out. I mean, I know that like in audience ops, our, you know, when we're hiring writers or editors or managers, like it's a whole funnel 
and it's and it's a ton like I have a team manager who that's that's her job is just to like go through applicants and do the interviews and and whittle it down to a short list and then do follow up interviews and and then pull me in and and it's like it it's it's incredibly time consuming and like we still hope that we made the right choice in the end and sometimes we did sometimes we didn't yeah and job boards don't solve that problem so that's the value chain we're driving up which is sort of like the productized service is something like people ops that get your business. And then that's sort of, we've been doing okay with it. It's only been basically the summer that we've been doing it. So we haven't even really gotten on the stick about marketing it. This is probably the first time I've spoken publicly about it. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. I mean, um, how is it evolving now? Obviously this year, 2020 is crazy with the pandemic. Has that had an, an impact on, on hiring remotely and positive or negative? Yeah. We, you know, we don't really know. I mean, when the pandemic hit, it was like all these content jobs started going up. Like all of a sudden, people's marketing budgets were going online. And then the other like very significant trend we saw is an influx of candidates. All of a sudden, you have all these people interested in working for companies like ours. We didn't really take advantage of that opportunity as much as I thought we would because a lot of these candidates just aren't qualified. And it's sort of like, yeah, like talk to us after you get done with Lambda school or after you have some real experience or whatever. I mean... Certainly part of me would love to like foster people through the process. But the reality is, is, you know, our clients want people with hard skills that are demonstrated. Yeah. So that's the direction we focus towards the top of the market. I mean, I know this is probably going to like open up a can of worms. We'll, we'll wrap it up here after this one. But the, that is one of the hardest things about the hiring process is, is like whittling down the, the really quality candidates and getting rid of the 95% of the, <laughs> who just don't, don't fit it really what you need. Like, do you have any like tips or, or maybe strategies that you guys do with, with your clients to really like, you know, filter out and, and, and identify like who's, who's really worth spending time on? Well, this is why we're building a software platform on the backside of Dynamite Jobs to essentially represent the referral gig economy that's happening behind all this stuff. Because one of the best ways to get a job with you, for example, is like, hey, I pick up a freelance project with you for 500 bucks. Like, hey, I'll, I'll do a month's worth of podcast production for you. I'll like dump my podcast process into, into process kit and then your team can run it, right? And now maybe you'll think about hiring me full time. And like, that's kind of how things progress. And one of the things I realized, I guess, Brian, is like, I mean, we're really good at what you just described, like figuring out which candidates are the best, figuring out whether they, quote, get it giving them different sorts of assessments, whether it's personality or technical, going through interviews, doing the right thing. We can't make it faster. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. it's so hard. And the one advantage we have is, you know, we call it like the value of second place. So, you know, if you reach out to me and, and I give you like five great candidates that have been assessed, at least I've got the four others. So now when other entrepreneurs come through, I can like look at maybe one of those would be a fit. But you still have that issue of you need the candidates to say, I want to work for Brian. Like I see and understand what he's doing. You can't just dump them off in front of you. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's like partly like, like selling the job opportunity in the first place. Like one of the things that I, that I do with, with most jobs is like I have a really long application form, like a lot of questions. Yep. And I'm asking, I'm asking a lot of them to, for somebody to sit there and, and spend 10 minutes filling this thing out. Like that in a way is, is a way of just filtering out like the, the people who don't want to answer all those questions, that's fine. 100%. And, you know, one of the, I think feel like the real benefits of our service is 
because we're basically an entrepreneurial team, we know how to tell the narrative of your company to candidates, which is really critical, especially in the assessment stage, because now you're asking them to work, not just apply. And a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, they might be good at it, but it's like they got a million other things going on. And even I was like, I just hired like three, three or four weeks ago. I own a job site and I was like, this is a pain in the ass, man. I got to write this job ad. I got to do all this stuff. And so that's part of the reason why I think so many people want to post gigs and projects. Cause it's like, Hey, I'm Brian Castle. Like, you should know who I am. Like if you know who I am or somebody knows me, I just need it. I need somebody who understands react for like two weeks. And I feel like that really, I feel like there's an opportunity there because so many entrepreneurs want to go that way and avoid the full-time process if they can. Yeah. And so I think we want to attack that problem along with that idea of, I guess the ideal end game for us, Brian, would be that after months and years of doing this, that it's like, man, I'm just going to call these guys and I'm going to talk to my account manager for 30 minutes. And two weeks later, three weeks later, someone's going to show up. And I just got to make a decision as to whether or not it's a yes or no. I love it. So, I mean, as we wrap up here, like what's, what are you looking at for the rest of this year going into next year? Obviously the whole world is so unpredictable right now, but like, are you continuing to iterate now on, on dynamite jobs? And you mentioned the software, like anything new that we should look ahead to? What are you, what are you working on? Yeah. I mean, I'd say we're 100% all in on this. We make no money off of it. We're reinvesting all of the revenue we generate in the software platform that we're building to do two things. Number one, to allow uh, entrepreneurs to be able to post simple gigs and get them accomplished by people that are in the network and referred and have positive reviews and all that. And then the second thing is that platform will also allow us to expedite that full-time hiring process. So, you know, right now we have 15,000 contact records and resumes, but it, in terms of like collating, sorting, assessing, getting candidates to the right jobs on time, it's still very a manual process in our back, our back end. And so uh, the minimum positive outcome for us would just be that our services that I discussed, those productized services, would just be much more efficient for us to deliver and that that could be a win in and of itself. So if the software thing doesn't work out, we still intend to move forward with the productized service over the next few years. Very nice. Well, we'll uh, continue to tune in to Tropical MBA and, and, and see your progress. This is, I mean, awesome work, awesome story over the years. Yeah. Thanks, Dan, for, for doing this. I appreciate it, Brian. Thank you very much. All right. Did that give you something to think about? If it did, let me know on Twitter. I'm at CastJam. If you want to find show notes on this or any of the other episodes or my weekly newsletter with new content, head over to productizeandscale.com. Now, if you haven't already, a five-star review in iTunes, that would go a long way to helping other folks find the show. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next time.